when you when you represent someone, you take on a case that has not only huge conf like you know huge consequences uh, for that individual, but also for a community. What's it like to take on that that weight and and that um, you know what's it like to be out there fighting for that community and that person? Is it, it must be a lot of responsibility. Well, here's uh, maybe the answer. I have a form of arrogance and that has been given lots of, uh, I don't know, uh, support. And therefore, maybe arrogance is the wrong word, it's self-confidence. So I always say to myself, God damn it, you know, if this dude goes down and he goes away or they kill him, you know, in a death penalty case, I've done everything I can do and no one would have done it better. So I insulate myself from, you know, kind of, I don't know, uh, being um, uh, afraid, you know, to take those kind of cases, afraid of losing Uh cases, afraid that if I lose a case, it will destroy me forever. That's my uh, uh, specialty. That's what I do. So... Uh, I I don't when I take a, a case with especially a lot of publicity and society is looking at it through the media and it has like symbolic meaning and I lose you know I say like I like a prize fighter I got to get up and knock them out next time. This is part two of three of our series with Tony Sarah. If you missed the first episode, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it now. These are not meant to be thorough histories, and I am not an expert on any of these topics. Just a confused and interested millennial looking to the past to find some answers to the future. This is The Inheritance Project. Any lawyer says, I've never lost a trial. either hasn't tried many or he's cherry-picked. A lot of... of, uh, they pick cases that obviously, you know, have a uh, 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 reasonable doubt kind of built in. Uh, and those are the lawyers who sometimes say, oh, I've never lost a case. But if you're in there swinging and you're fighting and you're, you know, have a bigger, I don't know, symbolic, you know, meaning uh, for a trial, you're going to take cases where you know goddamn well you're going to lose. Right. But you're going to fight. You're going to give him dignity. And you're going to give him respect, even though he may have done a horrible thing, you know, from the perspective of the norm. Uh-huh. As many have said before, we want our heroes to be all good. And of course, we crave for our villains to be all evil. But what makes Tony's mission a more complicated one to explain is that Characters in real life aren't either of those things. It is easy in one way to portray him as a hero always fighting on the side of truth, but death penalty cases have a way of making things more complicated. And reading through these cases, you may find yourself thinking, has he found himself on the wrong side of the truth? This will not be for me to decide, but I say this up front so that you can make your own decision. What is clear about Tony is that 
he believes that he is fighting on the side of justice, if even to protect the oath that he has made to himself that no one deserves to be locked up in steel cages, and his absolute opposition to the death penalty. You may not even believe in the sentiment, once you think about it. No one deserves to be in a steel cage? No one? I ask these questions because some of the cases we are about to talk about involve very complex people, some of who will go on to be heroes for the causes that they champion, and some will return to long paths of violence and even domestic terrorism. Some of his clients may be obviously innocent, and some may be obviously guilty. But Tony believes that all of them deserve a full-throated defense. I was real... um, uh how would I call it, uh, devoted? You know, you used the word I served, the Black Panther Party. And Black Panthers, you know, were uh, separated, you know, from the mainstream. And they were seeking change in their fashion. And they were, you know, aggressive and demonstrated. And they were brave. And they were, you know, uh, uh, motivated. And that's my youth. I served the yeah. Black Panthers, a lot of murder cases. I, uh, you know, uh, when I represented uh, Huey Newton. Perhaps his most famous client was Huey Newton of the Black Panthers. Newton co-founded the Black Panther Party in 1966 with a friend and co-founder, Bobby Seale, in response to the incidents of police racism on the streets of Oakland, California. The group's original purpose was to patrol ghettos and protect residents from the police, but the party eventually developed into a Marxist revolutionary group that called for arming of all African Americans, exemption of all African Americans from the draft, and the release of black Americans from jails and prisons. At their peak in the late 1960s, the Panthers' membership exceeded 2,000 people across the country. In 1967, Newton was convicted of manslaughter in the death of a police officer, but his conviction was overturned just two years later. In 1971, he announced that the party would adopt a manifesto of nonviolence, and under Newton's leadership, the Black Panther Party founded over 60 community support programs, including food banks, medical clinics, sickle cell anemia tests, prison busing for families of inmates, legal advice seminars, clothing banks, housing cooperatives, and even their own ambulance services. The most famous of these programs was the Free Breakfast for Children program, which fed thousands of impoverished children daily during the early 1970s, and which we spoke about in the first series with Kathy Goldman. But on August 6, 1974, Kathleen Smith, a 17-year-old Oakland native working as a prostitute, was shot and killed. According to the DA, Newton shot Smith after a casual exchange on the street, during which she referred to him as Baby a childhood nickname that he hated. Allegedly, a yellow car belonging to the Panthers and Huey Newton pulled up to the intersection where Smith was working. The driver got out and summoned her over to the car. There was a short conversation with someone in the back seat. The back door opened. The passenger got out, aimed a gun at her, and shot her dead point blank. The police quickly alleged that it was Huey Newton's car and actually found the car still warm in a parking lot that night owned by the Black Panthers. And when word got out that the police were trying to pin the murder on him, he fled to Havana, Cuba, where over the next three years, Newton stayed as hundreds of claims came out about members of the Oakland police force trying to pin crimes on Black Panther Party members. 
During one internal investigation, word got around that any prostitute, pimp, or drug dealer that could identify Newton as the murderer would, in essence, be given a free pass to operate on that corner. In 77, there was a shift in the political winds, and so Newton returned to face trial for the murder, now represented by Tony Serra. Tony found that every single witness that had ID'd Newton as the shooter had had their records wiped clean, and he presented a chart that displayed each of their testimonies. One described the shooter wearing a black hat and brown shirt. Another said that he was wearing combat boots and no hat. And together, there were 24 different descriptions of Huey Newton that night. Ultimately, Tony proved that their star witness, a fellow prostitute who had said that she had only been a few feet away when she identified Newton, was actually in prison the night of the shooting, and the case fell apart. Yeah, uh, you know, obviously that was a high uh, moment in my career, and just what you said, uh, courts were packed with spectators, the halls were packed, and there was um, a crowd outside, and um, every juror knew that these were all people here who um, morally and legally supported Huey. Um, and uh, it's just what you said. I, I can remember it when I'm giving closing arguments, just, you know, like they, they yeah, Tony, yeah, Tony, 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 you know, they would kind of <laughs> ad-lib, uh, and that's not seen very often, nor allowed very often in a trial, but uh, uh, it was an overwhelming presence of support, which um, probably intimidated, you know, everyone into allowing... Uh, just like in Patrick Rudy Croy, uh, certain benefits that aren't normally bestowed. However, in October of 1977, three Black Panthers attempted to assassinate a key witness against Newton, Crystal Gray, so that she wouldn't be able to testify in Newton's upcoming trial. Unbeknownst to the assailants, they attacked the wrong house and the occupant returned fire. During the shootout, one of the Panthers was killed, while the other two assailants escaped. One of the two surviving assassins, Flores Forbes, fled to Las Vegas, Nevada, with the help of Panther paramedic Nelson Malloy. In November of 1977, Malloy was found by park rangers paralyzed from the waist down from bullet wounds to the back, laying in a shallow grave in the desert outside of Las Vegas. According to Malloy, he and Forbes were ordered by higher-ups to be killed to eliminate any eyewitness accounts of the attempted murder of Crystal Gray. Malloy recovered from the assault and told police that fellow Panthers Roland Reed and Alan Lewis were behind his attempted murder. Newton, meanwhile, denied any involvement or knowledge and said that the events might have been the result of overzealous party members. But Newton himself would fall victim to gun violence in 1989 shot dead by a drug dealer in Oakland, seven years after the party had disbanded. From the Black Panthers, Tony moved on to the White Panthers, a group of white activists trying to do their part that was involved in a police shootout where a policeman died after executing a no-knock warrant on their clubhouse in the Haight District of San Francisco. From there, Tony's career took off in unexpected ways, and he ended up defending a series of political terrorist organizations, 
including Russell Little and Michael Borton of the Symbionese Liberation Army, or the SLA, and Jacques Roger of the New World Liberation Front. You might know SLA most notably from Patty Hearst's kidnapping and subsequent crime sprees and bank robberies. However, Tony represented the group both before and after that, and the NWLF was known for their bomb spree all across the Bay Area that was aimed at groups that they called legitimate targets of corporate greed. They claimed responsibility for approximately 70 bombings in the San Francisco Bay Area between 1974 and 1978 including the attempted murder of Senator Dianne Feinstein and her daughter at their summer vacation home. Um, there's a number of cases. I remember one Jacques Rougier, and uh-huh. he was uh, the overground of, and I'm just blanking what the and group NWLF, was. is that right? Yes, NWLF. Oh, you know, you know better than I. <laughs> and he was like an interesting, as I recall, and you probably have better memory, uh, he took a vow of silence rather than testify in front of the grand jury. He And we went through trial. He had a vow of silence. Wow. And what a case that was. Remember, we uh, had a First Amendment uh, kind of a, uh, a defense that he was just the press. And they were saying, no, he was uh, making the demands and pointing to the underground on who to bomb if, you know, they didn't meet demands. But right. um, uh, I think he was pretty uh, pure. And uh, what was so wonderful about him, or I don't know, odd in that sense, is that after the trial... He took up the yellow robe. That means he became a Zen monk. He disappeared and was never seen again. I, um, you know, I've, I've been uh, making my way through Lust for Justice, and um, for the last 15 years, I uh, have been an actor. I've been a Broadway actor, and I have always kind of. Uh, it was hard for me to distill down why I liked acting for so long, but um, what I realized is that I, I, I really like learning about people. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and what I read about your book is how you've been able to not only help people, but also you get invited into these incredible cultures and causes. And you're just, you seem to be able to learn something very quickly, learn um, a community's pain, a community's uh, fight, and then put it into words that everybody can know. And I, I wondered if you know, a secondary motivation for you is that if you're just a very, you seem like a very curious learner, um, you know. Well, I, I agree with you that a criminal defense lawyer who practices, so to speak, uh, in the back alleys of the uh, legal world um, encounters uh, subcultures and uh, individual, you know, people, their own separate uh, psychology, uh, and that's fascinating, and that is uh, intriguing, and they say a good lawyer is like a psychiatrist, social worker, uh, you know, doctor and lawyer, you know, you, you combine uh, all those features if you uh, want the, uh, the totality of the experience. But uh, 
that's not my compelling motive. Uh-huh. Curiosity is not my compelling motive. Uh, identification with downtrodden, you know, identification with those who are suffering pain, uh, down those who lose their constitutional rights. That's more of my uh, motivation or causation than just uh, exploring, let's say, sociologically the um, the. Uh, Separate uh, the aberrant, uh, you know, and and the uh, uh, bizarre. Um, and when you work on those death penalty cases, I mean, that that moment. I mean, you you obviously said you, you put everything you got into it. You fought as hard as you can, but the stakes really can't be higher at that moment. Um, what is that like to sit there and wait for? A well, you asked that kind of question before. And uh, somehow, for me, it's I, I accept it as part of my karma. So yeah. it's a, I'm, I'm not emotionally disturbed. Maybe that's the sad part about practicing criminal defense. You look at photo after photo of people who have been murdered. They're horrible. They're bloody. You know, their face shots are agonizing, and this has been on my palate, you know, from the beginning. So I think my mind uh, shields my inner uh, sensitivities from um, these kind of images, from these kinds of cases for death penalty. And, you know, for losses. And the lawyer says, I've never lost a trial. He either hasn't tried many or he's cherry-picked. A lot of, of, uh, they pick cases that obviously, you know, have uh, a reasonable doubt kind of built in. Uh, Those are the lawyers who sometimes say, oh, I've never lost a case. But if you're in there swinging and you're fighting and you're, you know, have a bigger, I don't know, symbolic, you know, meaning uh, for a trial, you're going to take cases where you know goddamn well you're going to lose. I'd like to thank Tony Sarah for speaking with me. And special thanks to Laurel Neer. Mackenzie Bell, and Nancy Schaefer for their help with this episode. See you next week.